Hi, and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Keith. Today we have um, Emma Pearson, who is an assistant professor of computer science at Cornell Tech and the Technion, and she was previously a senior researcher at Microsoft Research. Her work develops data science and machine learning methods to study inequality in healthcare. She has also written articles for non-academic publications, such as the New York Times and the Washington Post. Welcome, Emma. Thank you for having me. Great. And today we're going to be discussing one of her papers in particular, uh, Daily, Weekly, Seasonal, and Menstrual Cycles in Women's Mood, Behavior, and Vital Signs. Um, this is joint work with Tim Althoff, uh, Daniel Thomas, Paula Hillard, and Yuri Leskovic. Uh, so I'll start out with my takeaways from this, this paper. Um, so most individuals will experience mood changes, differences in behavior such as sleep, exercise, or sex, and changes in vital signs like weight, body temperature, and heart rate. And this paper is really fascinating in that it analyzes how these mood, behavior, and vital signs change over different cycles. So seasonal cycles, weekly cycles, daily cycles, and most importantly, a central focus of the paper is focusing on the cycle of a woman's, uh, a woman's menstrual cycle. So uh, to analyze these different cycles, the authors use 241 million observations from 3.3 million women across 109 countries who track their period, mood, behavior, and other vitals on an app called Clue. And the researchers find that the menstrual cycle accounts for the highest amplitude change in most observations, such as how happy versus sad a person is, uh, their sexual behavior, and all three vital signs. And one of the most interesting takeaways I found is that the the amplitude of the menstrual cycle is 1.7 times the effect of Christmas, meaning uh, the, the, the changes you're gonna see from the menstrual, menstrual cycle are, are gonna be um, quite a bit bigger than even the effect of this holiday. So we'd like to uh, have Emma jump in here and uh, clarify or uh, extend any of these takeaways from the paper and we can talk about the substantive piece of the, the paper quite a bit more. Yeah, I, th I think that's a fantastic summary, actually. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I, if I'm going to add anything, it would just be the sort of, so, so, so what are these findings actually? Like, what is the primary finding actually? To be clear, the main finding is just the menstrual cycle is the primary cycle, right? It's larger than the daily, weekly, and seasonal cycles for most of the dimensions of mood, behavior, and vital signs that we study. No one's been able to do that comparison before because they haven't been able to compare all four cycles before because people don't systematically collect data on the menstrual cycle on this scale. Fine. Um, so, 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 so why is this important? Importantly, our finding does not mean um, that women are more volatile than men. We make no comparisons across genders and sexes. Previous research hasn't found sex differences in volatility. Men have hormone cycles too. Um, rather, what it means is that the menstrual cycle is at least as important as the other three cycles, which are much less, you know, uh, much less stigmatized, much more studied. Uh, and we should normalize the menstrual cycle just the way we do, you know, talking about the sleep cycle or something like that. You know, we should be able to collect data on it and prioritize that in health records and health apps, which is not always done. 
Uh, we should make sure that clinicians consider it when they treat patients and, and sort of more broadly, culturally, this should not be like the butt of immature teenage boys jokes or US president's jokes. It, it should be like a fundamental topic that affects the health of half the global population. So that that's sort of the broader takeaway. Fantastic. And can I uh, dig in a little bit more to, I, I, I noticed in your paper, you several times emphasize uh, this, this, this key part, which is that your results should not imply that women are more volatile than men. Were you worried that your study would be misconstrued by people reading it? And um, was that something that came up in the reviews? Uh, how did you think about framing this as you were, you were studying this potentially sensitive topic? Yeah, we thought about this a lot. So, so why? Um, part of it is driven by my own experience trying to sort of write for public audiences, which is essentially like a very large scale game of telephone, right? You like write something meaning X and what people actually take from it is not just like X prime or Y, but like Lambda or like you hate women or, you know, like all kinds of crazy things. So it's, it's very, and, and these are not malignant people. It's just that communication is very hard. People are heterogeneous in their backgrounds. So, so that's one inherent risk. So I was mindful of that. Then there was also the fact that like, you know, I would sort of give a talk on this work preliminarily for all, well, not all male, but, but heavily male audiences often because I'm a computer scientist. And you would sort of get these sort of sympathetic clucks from the audience, like, oh, hard to be a woman. And it was like, okay, like, come on. Like, you know, I, I, that, I, I do not want the takeaway to be that like women are these incredibly fragile, volatile creatures suffering from this thing. So that was a concern. And I think it may have been gestured to in the reviews as well. Um, and so, you know, I just, I thought this was a cool finding and I really wanted to make sure it was not misconstrued um, as something it was not. Cool. You recently wrote a reflection on this paper um, on Nature's website and it, in it you talk about studying the menstrual cycle in, a, cycle in a male dominant field. Could you recap a few of those thoughts for our listeners who might not have read yet read that reflection? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about where I got the idea to study the menstrual cycle in the first place, but I think, you know, I was in a computer science PhD student. I was in a program. I was interested in studying this. And, you know, even to sort of talk about this to your peers was, you know, it, it was the kind of thing that made you potentially nervous. Um, but when I, when I talked to Tim Althoff, who became second author on this paper, he was second author on another paper we wrote on the menstrual cycle. Uh, you know, he's a computer science professor at University of Washington now, really a lovely guy. And his reaction to, to me pitching this idea was not, oh, like gross, icky. He was like, oh, like, I'm not sure I know all the math there. Like, he, he wasn't sure he, he was sort of, he had enough of the, the, the mathematical chops, neither was I. Um, and, so, and so that was very reassuring, right? Because we were having this technical discussion. We were not having a discussion about like his masculine discomfort with this whatever. Um, and, and, and so I think that was good. And I think, you know, I often got that reaction from my male co-authors. Like it was not necessarily a topic they had thought about, um, but they could appreciate the mathematical coolness of this phenomenon, like this latent sinusoid, you know, like if you talk to people about a latent sinusoid, they're like, oh, you know, like, like people, people relate to that, um, even if they, they never, never personally have had a period. Um, and so, and so I think, I think that was one illustration of this, that, that, you know, math was sort of a language that could transcend boundaries imposed by people's personal experience. And that's, you know, that's a nice thing when it actually works. So backing up, can you, uh, 
talk a little bit about where this idea came from. Um, where was the spark of the idea and um, how did you go from that to uh, actually thinking it could be a viable research project? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the desire to study the menstrual cycle originated in part with some comments that Donald Trump had made about Megyn Kelly, you know, as he, I guess at that point was a presidential candidate, right? He had sort of made fun of her for being on her period. And like, I, you know, it was just, it made me mad. I mean, it was so, you know, I mean, it just because this is a fundamental issue, right? This should not, this is not a joke. And so, you know, so, so, so that was really the whole focus of this, of, of, of this from the beginning was like, can we, can we normalize talking about this? Like, can we publish these papers in venues that computer scientists recognize um, and, and make the message that like, this is something okay to talk about, you know, or this is something that's important to study. This is something you can, you can put in places that you recognize in yourself. Um, and, you know, so that was the original sort of, sort of reason um, we embarked on this line of research. And I should mention, you know, we're talking today about the last paper in this line of research, but I actually wrote it through three. Um, and so, so how did it actually become viable to work on this? To study the menstrual cycle, you need, of course, data on the menstrual cycle. And this isn't easy to get or widely available. It's often not collected, it's personal data, et cetera. So as a second year, I think, PhD student, I just cold emailed several women's health companies. And you know, this study would never have been po possible 10, 15 years ago because these companies did not exist. But now you have you know, millions of people literally using these apps and, and, and logging this data, very rich data. And so one of the companies wrote back um, and said, you know, sure, let's talk about a data use agreement, whatever. Um, and, you know, I guess they decided that, you know, we were, we were legit. We weren't going to just like drop the data on, 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 on the internet. Um, and that was Clue. Um, and, and, you know, Clue has always sort of supported women's health research. That's one of the founding goals of the, the company. I think it's a, it's a deep ideal there. Um, and so they were excited about the collaboration. And that was the point. I mean, I, I remember the day clearly when, when they said they would be willing to give us the data because, because it was like quite an exciting thing. Um, and, and that was the point at which the whole, the whole research project actually kicked into gear. Um, and I think, you know, within a month or two after getting the data, I had sort of written the initial code that generated the results that became our first paper. So uh, clearly this partnership is central to this type of research. Can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of your experience beyond just Clue, but of trying to get these data sharing agreements between companies and researchers? And how long does that process take? What are some, some of your... Um, ways that you go about it, trying to form these like very delicate relationships? And uh, have you had any sort of challenges or pitfalls with trying to establish collaborations with industry and, and trying to work with real data? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so so I've, got, I've, I've, I've gotten data from, from many sources. Um, and if data sets are non-public, they're often non-public. So, so sometimes, you know, government data sets, uh, healthcare data sets, industry, industry data sets. Um, I think, you know, the clue, the clue case may be the only case where I sort of directly initiated the collaboration with an industrial collaborator. Um, so, so why are these things tricky? Well, I think first because you know, this is true even in 2017 or 2016 when I did this, but but it's probably more true now, right, with GDPR and, and various other concerns about privacy, you know, responsible 
companies are not just going to give out their data um, to everyone, right? Like that they're they're going to want to vet and and be careful and do their do their due diligence. Um, and so you really you know you have to establish that you're a legitimate researcher. You know that obviously you're not you're not going to use the data for profit. That you're not going to leak the data that you've experienced working with these things. So I think I think people are people are careful, um, and 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 that's certainly as it should be. And so you really just want to you know, I mean I am. I think to a fault, most people would say sort of neurotic about, about privacy and about, you know, we really need to be, be careful with this stuff. And so I think the, the key is to sort of communicate that to people. Um, I think a second reason people often don't want to share data, and this I think is less defensible, but, you know, it makes sense, is, is you know, there's in, in industrial settings, there's a profit motive. These data are valuable. Um, and so, you know, that, that can be that can be difficult too. Um, and, you know, with the onset of COVID right now, one thing we're seeing is that this profit motive has become a little less binding and companies are giving out data sets that they wouldn't normally give out. So, you know, the, the paper um, we, we published recently with Serena as, as the main author on COVID was based on a mobility data set, which generally is not publicly available or sorry, available to researchers without, you know, paying for it or something like this. Um, and, and they just made it available because they recognize the crisis. And so I, I think those are two things that people generally confront. One is, are you gonna be responsible with the data? And the second is, are these data really valuable and can we make a lot of money off not just giving them away? Um, so follow up on that first point about being responsible with the data, how exactly do you establish your legitimacy and establish trust with this industry partner? Is it conversations? Is it um, written documents? Is it having an institution behind you like Stanford or um, Cornell that has a, a, a name brand recognition? Like what are the pieces that you think other researchers can take away if they're trying to establish really solid relationships with industry partners to do some of this foundational scientific research? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think certainly having an institution you know, whether that's your advisor, whether that's Stanford, uh, whose name you can throw around, I think that's helpful. Um, I think you can point to your own previous record. You know, I've, I've, knew, I've done all these, all these analyses and, and no one died, so, so that's good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think saying, you know, maybe explicitly anticipating their concerns, um, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll take measures to protect the privacy of the data, our servers are blah, 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 all these things. Um, I think companies will often want people to, you know, sign a data use agreement, so that that can provide some peace of, as mind of mind as well. You know, governing the terms under which the data will be used. Um, so, so I th I think those those are all things. I think another thing is, you know, value your collaboration. So we we wrote three papers with Clue, not one, because like you know, it was sort of the gift that they kept on giving. And you know, when I I, I, Clues offices, at least several years ago, were in Berlin, and I, I actually made a special trip out to their offices. Um, I was there for, in the area for a conference anyway, and like, you know, we like ate lunch together and like, you know, saw each other face to face and, uh, and, and so on. And so, and so that I think was a, was a good thing and sort of, you know, you break bread together, you establish, you establish trust. I guess the final thing Oh, 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 actually, I, I, well, okay, this is maybe just a, a corollary. I, th I think, you know, you want to establish to people, you want to think about like people's incentives and like, why is this good for them? 
um, you know, is a good PR for the company. But, you know, like, you know, uh, I, I don't know. ExxonMobil is, is not going to give you a ton of data just to like say about abandoned kittens. ExxonMobil doesn't care about abandoned kittens. So, so think about what people's incentives are and like, how are, how are what you're doing? Is it going to be good for them? You know, if the company has a history of publishing, they may be willing to give you stuff just because things are genuinely cool. Um, but, you know, maybe you can give them back an analysis uh, that they could put on their website or, or something like this, that this might be one way to communicate actually with journalists who have access to data that you want. You say like, oh, we'll do this analysis. It'll be cool for you. You can write a story about it. You're generating content. So like, don't be selfish. Like think about how what you're doing is a win for them. Will it go into their product? You know, will the research paper make them look good? Do they have a research team that wants to do this anyway? Think about where people are coming from. Earlier, you mentioned that you were like a second year PhD student when you were like trying to find data sets. And then now you're like a professor. So it's like there's a range of time that occurred between like initial outreach to like having this paper being written, although this paper was published a while ago, but not that long ago. So I'm curious, like what was the timeline of this paper? And then how did you like interweave this project with your other projects? Like what was kind of that process like? Yeah. I mean, the menstrual cycle research was never, it was not the preeminent thread, I would say, of my PhD research. Um, it made it into my dissertation. It did not make it into my job talk. So it was not like the central project I was working on during my PhD. Um, what happened? Uh, yeah, so we got the data like second year PhD. Then I, I mean, I wrote two papers on it before this paper. So that probably took like a year or two. Um, this paper... I think I had the idea for it pretty early, honestly, like maybe, I, I think basically, I think I had the idea for it about the second year, late second year of PhD. Basically the idea was just like, oh, like maybe we could break people's, you know, signal into four simultaneous cycles. Probably no one's been able to do this before because it, it's hard to get the data to do so. And the, that actual basic analysis was pretty simple to run. It's just a regression, right? And so I did that and the regression coefficients came out and like they clearly showed these effects, um, sort of intuitive effects in all the cycles. So that was kind of cool, right? Cause you have the first sort of feeling like, oh, like the, the rubber meets the red, like there's signal here. You know, you sort of have that instinct sort of honed from. And so I sent that to Yure and to Tim um, and who, who, you know, are the senior author and the second author on the final paper. And they thought it was cool and then what happened? Then I then I then we realized we needed some additional data from Clue basically to make the analysis work. I don't quite remember what it was. Oh, we needed local time zone information because basically I was doing the analyses all in GMT time, which is not optimal because people are shifted. So you want to be able to convert to local time zones. Okay. So that was anytime you need to get data and an analysis from a company, you know, whatever, like <laughs> things, things, things rest for months and months. We went back and forth in several iterations, right? Because the it wasn't quite right, you know, we, and, and, and I think what was fortunate here was, you know, Clue was very much on board, um, right? They were being helpful. I've worked with people where, you know, they don't necessarily, like, for example, we've done analyses of policing data. The police are not necessarily like gonna wanna give you tons of, you know, um, de depending on the department, uh, obviously. Anyway, sideways. So, so at some point we finally had all the data we need, we needed and then it probably took, you know, another several, several months to write the paper and do all the robustness checks. Um, 
And so, yeah, so it probably would have been, I, I, I don't, I don't remember quite the exact timeline, but we probably had a draft that in some form was, was, was ready to submit, you know, maybe in my, in the fourth year of my PhD. Um, but it was quite a slow process. And then we started submitting it to journals and we can talk about that, but that was the basic timeline. Yeah. So, so good um, segue into our next question, which is, can you talk about the submission and revision and um, sort of rebuttal process of this paper? Why did you decide on, on where it did end up getting submitted to and um, what were the main concerns or rejections uh, from the reviewers? Yes. So I, so I think a very relevant person here is Yure, who's the senior author on the paper. And I think this is a great thing about Yuri. So Yuri is a computer scientist, which means he necessarily does not have expertise, you know, in everything he studies, uh, uh, just because he has a very broad, broad depth, but, but he's tremendously enthusiastic. So he was very excited about this paper. He thought cycles were, I, I don't know, he got very excited about it because Yuri gets very excited about lots of things. Um, the other thing that happened was we brought on a collaborator who, who was an expert on women's health, Paula Hillard. Um, and, and, and she thought it was cool too. So because two senior authors who like actually knew what they were talking about and, you know, were excited about things, um, you know, we're, we're into the paper, we were like, okay, fine, whatever. We'll like submit this to sort of, you know, you know, you do the thing where you kind of go down the ladder of journals, right? So you submit to nature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so in this case, you know, we submitted it, it, it definitely got desk rejected, like from, from nature and stuff like this. Um, which I don't, was I disheartened by this? No, I, I don't think so. Because one thing I've dealt with like a massive amount of rejection. For another thing, I think one nice thing about writing papers about the menstrual cycle is if they get rejected, it's like, you can be like, oh, maybe it's not a reflection on paper quality. Maybe it's just like, people don't like the menstrual cycle. So that's kind of comforting. It's like great ad for writing papers on the menstrual cycle. Um, and the other thing is like nature, everyone gets rejected from nature. So, so no big deal. So we went down the, 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 nature paper ladder um and I, honestly i was expecting it to get rejected from all the good nature journals just because i thought it was too i i don't know i had never seen uh, i i whatever i i had never seen an analysis of this form sort of that 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 that, that appear there so so you know i think it got rejected from nature medicine um at some point we we made it to nature human behavior and to my surprise, certainly they, you know, they reviewed it and the reviews were positive. And I was like, okay, so this is good. Um, prior to that, prior, at the other journals, it had never gotten reviews. It had just gotten rejected to, to, to my memory. Um, you know, journals desk reject papers if they're like, sorry, this is not broad enough to be of interest to our audience. To be clear, I'm not endorsing that attitude with respect to the menstrual cycle, because again, it is a phenomenon which affects half the global population, but you know, Oh, sorry. I, I want to be clear too. Also, I'm not saying that's why that's that's why the paper was rejected. It may well have been due to quality concerns and things like that. Like this is not an implication on the on the on the editors at, at the journals. I'm just saying, how did I personally feel at the time? I I don't remember taking it as particularly crushing. I was expecting it to happen. Mm -hmm. So as a computer scientist, I feel like a lot of us would um, usually aim for conferences like, you know, CS conferences. So why did you decide to do the nature ladder instead of a conference venue? Yeah, that's a good question. So our, our first two papers on, on this data set are 
in CS conferences. Um, they're both in www, which is a traditional CS venue. Um, why? Uh, so, and those were methods papers. You know, one of them was like a latent variable model. One of them's like a deep learning model for predicting pregnancy. This is not a methods paper. There really is. I mean, I guess you could call it a methods paper, but really it's just a linear regression performed, you know, in a slightly novel way with a whole bunch of robustness checks. So it's a findings paper. So you probably, I mean, you could publish it in the CS venue, but I thought, and I, that the general opinion was sort of like, well, the primary interesting thing here is not any kind of computational technique. It's the, it's the finding. And the finding is, is one of potential scientific interest, but it's not really of scientific interest to a CS audience. They don't care about the menstrual cycle per se. So you want to put it in a general interest journal. I think the other reasonable venue for this would have been like a women's health journal. I think, it, you know, that would have been interesting for them as well. And I think that might well have been where we went next if, if the nature journals had not accepted it. Can you talk a little bit about your other co-authors, specifically, you know, Paula Hillard, who um, is coming from the Department of uh, Gynecology at Stanford, um, and Daniel Thomas, who's actually coming from, from CLU. Um, you had this, this very interdisciplinary collaboration, which is a, a big reason why we're excited to talk about it on this podcast. How did you form these relationships um, with these folks outside of computer science, outside of your main department? Um, and what did the evolution of that partnership look like? Yeah, well, I, I want to say first that all, all co-authors on the paper were fantastic. I thought they were super upbeat, super cheerful. Uh, I remember I had a thread with them just being like, well, we got rejected, but don't worry, on to the next one. Uh, and, and, and they were all just very, so, so, so that was great. Um, you want me to talk specifically about the interdisciplinary co-authors? I mean, I'm happy to- That would to, be okay. great, yeah. Um, so, so Daniel, I mean, Daniel, I think, is a data scientist. I actually don't know what his what his degree is, but he's head of data science at Clue. So, you know, he's got he's he's definitely got some data science chops. I mean, uh, him I know because he was my primary point of contact um, at Clue. So he was the person sort of we were going back and forth with um, about the Clue data. He was the person who who took me out to lunch when I visited them in uh, Berlin. I mean, he's just an all around nice guy. So that that was sort of you know it began with the the email, but the cold email, but then we kind of went back and forth just, uh, you know, over multiple years um, fostering this relationship. And he's, he's on the paper in recognition of the fact that like, basically there's a lot of peculiarities about the data you need to understand to do this data, to do this analysis well. So it wasn't just that he pulled all the data for us, although he did. It's also that he contributed instrumentally to kind of the interpretation of the like, how do you actually define period starts? Like, oh, you should use like light, moderate, heavy bleeding, but not spotting because, you know, like these are not observations you really can make yourself. He's, he's, he's the one with the deep expertise there. Um, Paula Hillard, she, so, so she, I believe is a, is she, is she, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm trying to remember if she's if she's an MD, PhD, or just an MD, or just a PhD. But at any rate, she has deep expertise um, in women's health. So she's like written uh, papers on how the menstrual cycle should be considered as a, as a vital sign. Um, so basically, what, what happened? Uh, she was, uh, I, uh, Yure, Yure basically said, we need to find an expert on women's health in the menstrual cycle, which great, that spot on instincts there. Um, and so I went looking uh, for them. Uh, one of them I think said she was too busy, but, but we should talk to, to Paula Hillard. So, so we went to meet uh, with, with Paula Hillard 
And I remember that meeting uh, pretty clearly too, because um, it was it was quite early in the morning, and and I and 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 Yuri came, and and we met uh, Paula. And I remember just the two of them going back and forth, sort of talking about this. And Yuri was just like assiduously taking notes on all of this. Um, and and you know, to to both of their credit, I mean, these are people from very different backgrounds, not really speaking the same dis disciplinary language at all, but. You know, I think they were both open-minded enough to recognize that, like, they had this cool finding and 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 mutual enthusiasm, and so this was this was a productive collaboration opportunity. I think the oh the other thing about about Dr. Hillard, which is relevant, is she has written papers on flu data herself. Um, I and and so she she sort of is more amenable, let's say, to this data source and this methodology. Um, then perhaps, you know, all traditional practitioners of, of, of women's health or sort of from a medical background are. Um, and so I think that was another reason she was suggested to us as a collaborator. Um, and so she definitely brought sort of, you know, the deep disciplinary expertise, but also sort of the open-mindedness and experience with these new data sources. Um, and I, yeah, and I, you know, I think sort of be, because both she and Yuri were kind of willing to cross disciplinary boundaries, that, that worked out very nicely. Were there any specific times where um, either sort of Yuri was pushing on uh, something that um, was surprising to Paula or Paula was pushing on something that was surprising to Yuri and um, sort of where do you think their particular expertise did come in and sort of the, the final product of this paper? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think any any question to do with like, you know, I don't know, you know, should you control for whether people are using birth control? What term should you use for this point in, in the menstrual cycle? Does this effect make sense to you? Like, does it make sense to you that you see this, this blip in the curve here uh, in light of your previous concerns about, uh, you know, previous work on women's health, that that was Paula's domain. Um, and, 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 and she, she did that very well. I mean, I think both Yuri and I recognized like we did not have the background to do this. The other person who really helped there was Daniel. Um, but Daniel was sort of, he, he is to some degree women's health, but also specificities of the clue data. Um, and then Yuri, you know, Yuri as senior author on this paper, he, he was really responsible for a lot of the framing of it, right? Like, how do we make this, how do we make these results pop? How do we make them sound um, as cool as possible. I mean, I certainly remember going back and forth with him many times um, on the figures for the paper. You're always fastidious about figures um, until, you know, we were sort of both happy with them. I do not remember there being a lot of disciplinary conflict in terms of how, I, I, I don't rem ever remember them having a particular dis disagreement because I guess it's not clear even why they would have done it. like like Paula was the undisputed expert on the women's health side, right? And so neither Yuri nor I would have wanted to say anything that she thought was was wrong. Uh, um, were there like any major pitfalls or challenges while working on this paper? Like, were there any moments where you're like, ah, oh, this paper might not be going anywhere, or like any low points? I I, I think, I mean, I I won't say at all. I got. It's definitely true. I got somewhat discouraged by rejections. I mean, it wasn't like I don't remember being particularly crushing. Like I've like cried when some papers are rejected. I definitely never never cried over the rejections of this paper. But it was like a little, 
you know, there was a point where it was kind of like, okay, like it's been like three years since we got this data. Like, when are we actually going to get this paper accepted? Especially, I mean, the final paper wasn't accepted until after I graduated. Like, goodness, like the. So, uh, so, so, so I think, I think there was that, um, that aspect of it. You know, the uncertainty over where it would end up. But, but I knew, I think we knew very early on that there was there was a finding right like sometimes on research projects you go for a while and you don't you don't have that crucial moment where you realize you have a substantive finding um i don't i mean i think for this paper there wasn't really that because because we had those regression plots sort of all the way through you know it was clear there there was cyclicity here and that we had the statistical power to discover it and it was also pretty clear that that was going to be a novel thing so you know, unless people re rejected the methodology off, out out of hand, there was a new finding. Um, I mean, I think to the to the extent that this paper has 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 fundamental weaknesses um, and 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 things that caused me to question it, it's the sample, right? It's the fact that you know you like who who exactly is tracking their menstrual cycle every day on a, on a on a menstrual cycle app it's it's true that it's an increasingly common activity but still it's you know yes we we know that this is a biased sample and that's that's sort of an irreconcilable issue um with this data and 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 definitely one you know that that might it sort of sets a fundamental ceiling on on perhaps on on sort of how how reliable this this paper can be just due to the very nature of the sample um but but you know it was also pretty clear that that is not a sufficiently serious concern to to preclude any use of this data right like you know it's it's still a new data point it's it's an orthogonal source of evidence like you report your findings honestly you're transparent about the limitations it contributes to the sum total of knowledge so yeah so i think i i don't think there was ever a point where it's like what are we even doing here like is there anything here i don't think that was yeah can you talk a little bit more um at a high level about exactly what, what um, you were just alluding to, which is that sort of apps or social media or all these new forms of technology as um, instruments of measurement that we can use to study um, either social behavior or, or health, et cetera. Um, you alluded a little bit to this trade-off between representativeness and uh, sample size, you're getting a really large sample size with something like Clue, but it's maybe not necessarily representative of the entire population. So, uh, you know, in your research going forward, how do you how do you think about this trade-off? And what do you see as promising avenues? Yeah. Okay, so so I think I, I have a I have an economist friend um, who I think puts this nicely about how in general, you know, projects there are sort of two axes. One is sort of the rigor with which you can answer the question. And the other is how important is the question, right? Um, and you wanna, there's there's often a trade-off between these two. Like you can do these laboratory studies and they're like very valid, but but like it's the, you know, whatever. Um, and so so you wanna be sort of at that that frontier there. So that's 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 one way I, I broadly think about um, um, this trade-off, you know, like, some social data sources like will give you data on the on the entire world like twitter in principle gives you data on the entire world but like you know how representative a sample is it is it really you know people have used twitter to study happiness cycles across the entire world and then the question is well you know is that is that 
get are people really giving us true signal as to their mood on on Twitter yeah, and th things like this. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm not sure. In the, in, in the case of Clue, the way I went about thinking about the data source was while it's an imperfect data source, um, it's in many ways better than data sources that have previously been used to answer these questions. So, for example. You know, very small studies of like uh, I don't know women at Northeast liberal arts colleges sample size forty or something something like that. You know, so so sure. While this is non-representative, it's probably less non-representative certainly in terms of uh, national national nationality and things like this. Um, so I think I think there's sort of a comparative question um, there which is relevant. Um, I mean, going forward, it's it's a good question. I think going forward, my my research, at least in the near future, will probably rely uh, more on traditional uh, medical data sources. You know, uh, things things like EHR or like academic studies that are that are connect collected via more traditional um, methodologies. But those you know those data sets have have their have their own issues too, um, of course. So I. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I I I don't think we should rule out things just because they're collected via app, right? All data has has biases, and we should just we should think carefully about what those biases are. Are there other like things that you learned from this project that you kind of want to bring forward to your work in the future? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, just just this notion that like. Yeah, that mass is like this universal language that you can use to reach out to people. And, and then I guess, I mean, I, I do think this is true. I, I think, you know, I think, I think um, di diversity in science is, 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 is really important. And I think uh, people, and, and I think one reason it's important is because like, you know, if you, if you have only uh, men in your computer science program, it's a lot less likely that you get papers on the menstrual cycle. And indeed, the number of papers on the menstrual cycle has increased enormously in recent years. And my guess is many of those are written by people who would never have been computer science PhDs in the past. Um, so, so I think that's important. And I, I, and I think, you know, plenty, you give talks on this, you know, you hear plenty of ignorant remarks. But, but I think at the same time, one thing that was heartening to me about this, this project is just like, even if people start uh, not terribly knowledgeable about the topic you wanna to study with them, uh, they often have enormous goodwill um, and curiosity. And so if you kind of go out to them in, in a, you know, pull, pulling them in way, um, and, and you talk to them in a language that, that they understand, uh, you often will find them um, e e eager to help um, and, and very helpful. And so I think that, you know that's a that's a that's a heartening thing uh, to me. I mean, I I like to be optimistic about people, and 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 this project made me optimistic um, about people. I I think yeah. Do you have any advice for other uh, underrepresented groups that maybe want to study a, a topic that is potentially outside of the norm or the majority? Um, how would you what what advice would you give to those folks um, in terms of being able to take the initiative on on those sorts of projects? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, okay, I, yeah, I guess I would say a couple things. Um, I think first, my sense, again, perhaps overly optimistic, is that there's a lot of appetite um, right now for increasing equality and studying the problems of underrepresented groups. 
Um, so I think even cloaking it in that language, you know, can, can, can be powerful. Um, so I think that's true. But at the same time, or at least it's easier to do now, perhaps, than it would have been 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. Uh, so I think that's good. But I do think there, 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 there are obstacles. And I think, you know, I, I definitely did this from a very privileged position. So I think, I think one thing which makes it easier to do, made it easier for me to do, is the fact that I had external grant funding um, when I did this research. So like, you know, whatever, I'm gonna spend six months writing on the menstrual cycle, like uh, no, no one's paying me, I mean, I, I, you know, whatever. So, so, so I think being able to acquire the funding that gives you freedom, um, that's, a, that's a big thing. Um, I think a, a second thing that facilitated this research was, you know, I, I worked with an advisor, Yure, who had a track record of giving students freedom to work on a very wide set of projects and with interdisciplinary collaborators. And like, you know, as a PhD student, your advisor exerts a lot of control over your life. So if you want to do things which are a little out there, find advisors who are sympathetic to you. Do I mean, I, I chose your explicitly based on those criteria and uh, that trust was rewarded. Um, and, and, you know, so like, you know, talk, talk, talk to the, talk to your advisor before they become your advisor, like suss out their interest in this, you know, do they give you bad vibes? Um, that's, that's, that's a relevant thing. And I think the final thing to say, and this is a little less optimistic is like, you know, this was not the main thread of my PhD. Like I wrote a lot of papers that were not on the menstrual cycle and me, I, I think the, you know, I, I think people, it might've gotten a, like, I, I don't know, things would have probably worked out less well if this had been my only project. And so, you know, I do think there's some need to kind of do other things that, that succeed by more conventional academic indicators. I do not expect uh, these three papers to like account for a large fraction of citations um, and, and things like this. And, you know, I, I don't mean to be discouraging, but I think I want to I, I want to be realistic about what actually allowed allowed this 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 project to, to, to go forward. So so yeah, those are those are the things the things I would say. Oh, sorry, but but to be clear, um, I think a lot of work on on underrepresented groups is the kind of thing which actually does drive massive citations and is very successful by conventional indicators. So that's what I mean by emphasizing at the outset that there is a lot of appetite for this. Um, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that it doesn't. Rather, what I'm saying is just like, yeah, it's important to be mindful of things like funding, like will this ever get cited? Like, is your, is your, is your advisor open to it? Like those are forces that will, you know, affect, they, they affect incentives, they affect whether you'll have a happy life. So, sorry, in academia, not like all life writ large. <laughs> Is there um, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up here um, or anything that we didn't cover? I don't think so. I, I, I just, I wanna, I wanna just emphasize, you know, this was, this was a positive experience. This was an optimistic experience. And I think the world is ripe for more studies of this form sort of shining light on the problems of historically understudied populations. And I think often, you know, that will be very much professionally rewarded. I'm not necessarily sure that's true for the menstrual cycle yet. Uh, but it's true for many other topics. I mean, my entire PhD is studying the problems of underrepresented groups in various forms, um, and, and that worked out. Great. Well, thank you so much, Emma. We've appreciated all your um, your wonderful insights here. So thank you for, for being on the podcast. Oh, 
thank you so much. I really appreciate it.